How's everybody doing? Good. We do serve a wonderful Savior this morning. Uh, and that's good news because um, I have no way to stand up here and just to give some kind of amazing life advice that could change your life. We need a Savior. And uh, it's really good news that we have a Savior like Jesus. Uh, I want to pray one more time as we get in God's Word and pray that he'll speak to us uh, and he'll work in us and he'll build us up. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name, Lord, and we, uh, yeah, we're so grateful for your son, Lord. Father, we pray you speak to us from your word. God, help us to see really clearly who we are, what we're like. Help us to see who you are, what you're like. Uh, God, and we pray that you would use your word to build up your church. Father, and we pray uh, yeah, that we'd leave here changed. We'd leave here more like Jesus, God, and you would glorify yourself in us. God, we pray you'd show your strength. Uh, you'd show your wisdom, Father, by uh, using broken people. Uh, to communicate about a very whole, very majestic God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, uh, for folks who have uh, been with us for any amount of time, you know that from time to time I've kind of hopped in and out of this series about identity. We're talking about different uh, different things about our identity, who we are and what it has to do with our life, so we want to hop hop back in there. We're going to take a two-week break from Ecclesiastes, and we'll be right back in that. Um, not on purpose, but I'm sure uh, people are like, good, I get a break from the depression of Ecclesiastes. It is a depressing book in Jesus' name, uh, but it has lots of good things to say to us. It's a sobering book. Um, this this sermon uh, that I want to preach now from this text, the, the thing about our identity that I want to drive home, and I'll explain what I mean by it, is that um, if you're in Christ, you are dead, but you're also alive. You're dead, but you're alive. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, I want to start just by telling you this, because I'm from Texas, I grew up in Dallas, there's a, um, a summer holiday uh, that people in Texas celebrate. It's a, it's a unique holiday called Juneteenth. Anybody ever heard of Juneteenth? Um, oh, excitement about Juneteenth. Um, and Juneteenth is on June 19th. That's why it's Juneteenth. Of course, it's two words smashed together to make a new word because black people love making up words. Juneteenth is um, a holiday uh, that, that commemorates in uh, 1865 when the freedom of the slaves in Texas was declared. Right. And so before this, it was a joyous day because someone came and declared that these slaves are now legally free. They've been in bondage. They're free. That's really good news. The strange thing about it, though, is the Emancipation Proclamation, where Abraham Lincoln said all the slaves are freed, had already happened a few years earlier. And so for whatever reason, uh, uh, partly because Texas is so far down south and other reasons I won't get into, the news that the Civil War had ended hadn't really made its way to Texas yet. And we're not talking about a few weeks. We're talking about a few years. So that there are slaves in Texas who have been declared legally free who are still in bondage. And that's really difficult to hear. That's really hard. And so while they surely rejoiced when the general came down and he declared it and they were able to be 
free now, it was tragic that they had to stay in slavery for so long. There had been an identity change, right? In, in the eyes of those slave masters, they were still their property, but in the eyes of the law, they were free. So that their kidnappers and torturers had been stripped of their authority over their life, but they didn't even know that they were free. And they didn't no longer had to be held hostage and forced to work or die, but they didn't even know that they were free. And the strange thing is they longed for nothing more than to be free, but they didn't even know that they were free. And that's really tragic to think about. Some of you probably know where I'm going with this. Every single one of us is born dead in our sins, blind in our sins, deaf in our sins, enslaved in our sins. And here's what Scripture tells us, is that there's a Savior who can free us from bondage to our sins, right? There's a Savior who can deliver us. And for those of us who've put our faith in Jesus, we've already been freed from our bondage to sin. Our freedom has been declared. And the strange thing is, we often continue to live in our sin as if we didn't even know that we were free. There's this thing where um, sin had this power over us and we were dead in it. Jesus has declared our freedom, but we continue to serve it as if we're still in bondage. We continue to live in it like we're still in bondage, even though there's been that identity shift. Here's the interesting thing about being dead but alive is every person everywhere is some mixture of these two things, both dead and alive at the same time, right, in in, in spiritual ways. So all of us are born dead in sin, right? We're born dead to God and alive to our sin, right? We're born dead to God and alive to our sin. Because of our deadness in sin, we have no relationship with God, we have a very live and active relationship with our sin. Let me tell you what happens when we believe in Jesus. We then die to our sin and we come alive to God, right? So this is what Paul is going to talk about in this passage. This identity shift that happens is we're no longer dead in our sins. We're dead to our sins. And we're no longer dead to God, but we become alive to God. And that is a powerful identity shift. And here's why it matters is that if we don't understand it, we're dead to sin and alive to God, we'll continue to give sin authority in our life that it doesn't have. We'll continue to serve sin like we have some kind of obligation to it. But if we'll remember who we are in Jesus, we'll be reminded of this. This is what I think the main point of this whole passage is, is that sin has no place in us because sin has no power over us. Sin has no place in us, no place in our lives, no place in our daily weeks because it has no power over us. Uh, I want y'all to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Y'all, one of the reasons that uh, when we preach God's word, we usually open the Bible and we tell you what the Bible says and try to help you understand it is because we don't want you to think we're just up here making stuff up, right? We want you to see that what we're saying is, from God's words. Open with me to Romans chapter 6. I do this all the time, not to embarrass people, but just out of curiosity. Can you raise your hand if you've read Romans before? Yeah. Um, Romans is one of my favorite books in Scripture. I almost tripped on the carpet. Um, Romans is one of my favorite books in Scripture. And uh, where we're at in chapter 6, in the beginning of Romans, just a quick overview. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2, Paul makes this case that everybody, everybody 
has sinned against God and everybody's under the wrath of God. People, Non-Jews have sinned against God under the wrath of God and Jews have sinned under the wrath of God. Same thing in Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 4, he tells us, hey, but you can be seen as righteous because of what Jesus has done. And and, in Romans 5, he's telling us about, hey, there was this first Adam who represented man who sinned and now we're all dead in sin. Then there's this second Adam, Jesus, this better representative who faced the same test as the first Adam did, but he succeeded, right? And so through that first Adam came death, through this second Adam comes life. And he's talking about the big grace of God. But here's the thing. Paul knows what we're like. Paul knows that when we start to hear about God's grace, we're going to respond a particular way. So this is what he says. Romans 6. I'll start reading it. Chapter 1. This is God's word. I mean, verse 1. This is God's word. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's God's word. Sin has no place in us because it has no power over us. That's good news. So I want to, I want to look at a few things in this passage, things that I think would be good for us to keep in mind because here's the thing that happens. We'll hear a sermon like this and remember that sin has no power over us. And then as soon as we get out of this building and back at the crib, we again begin to feel like sin has some kind of power over us. So I want to talk about Three things I want want us to keep in mind uh, uh, to remember that sin has no power over us. First thing, I want us to keep grace in perspective. Paul talks about grace a lot in this book. I want us to keep grace in perspective. Um, Around Valentine's Day, uh, there was this uh, video that went viral that I just saw on my Twitter timeline. And uh, this video, it was of uh, two people in a room, a young man and a young woman facing each other talking. And uh, they were talking about uh, their relationship. They had been together, but they broke up earlier. And they were just having this discussion about what went wrong in their relationship. One, bad idea ever. Two, terrible idea on camera. Uh, I don't know what made them do that. So as people watch this video, which is a painful, like, 10 minutes to watch, Uh, People took sides pretty quickly. 
uh, it was pretty obvious who the villain was because the man was unfaithful to her. And the video starts with her saying, you know, in what ways were you unfaithful to me? What would you do? He's like, I did everything. And he goes through all of these ways, these confessions, all these ways he cheated on her. Uh, and again, they did this voluntarily. They signed up for this. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's really sad to watch, right? Because she's clearly really hurt. Uh, I think it was trending on Twitter, Twitter hashtag Hurt Bay. That's what people were calling her, Hurt Bay, because we got to give everybody nicknames. But it was really sad to watch because she was clearly really hurt by all the ways that he had betrayed her as he just kind of laid him out. And so after all this backlash and everybody on the Internet doesn't know him but despises him, he does a, a whole nother interview. And in his other interview, he starts to try to defend himself. And he says, you know what? I know I did that. I know that wasn't cool. But it's not really my fault because she knew. She knew the stuff that I was doing sometimes. And, and, you know, she knew I wasn't really ready to settle down. So in his mind, as long as she was going to let him get away with it, as long as she let him do it, then he might as well do it. It's fine as long as I can get away with it. Isn't that just how human nature works? We are fine with betraying the trust of somebody else as long as we feel like we can get away with it. Right. And get away with it means different things to us at different times. But most of the time, what get away with it means in the context of a relationship is uh, the relationship can still exist. As long as we feel like, oh, the relationship can still exist and I can get away with it, I'm fine. No concern for the other person's feelings. I can get away with it. No concern for what's actually right or wrong in our minds. We can get away with it. And that's all that really matters to us. And that same kind of human nature comes into play when we start to talk about our relationship with God. We assume that because God commits himself to us, because God has revealed himself to us as this really gracious God, that we could just do whatever we want. Because after all, he said he wouldn't leave us, right? He said he'd never leave us or forsake us. We can just do what we want because we can get away with it. I want to read the first part of this passage again, Romans 6, 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Paul starts off saying this, what shall we say then? Because he's, you know, said all of this stuff about how incredible God's grace is. He even said in chapter 5, he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? He's just made this point that the grace of the Lord Jesus is greater than your sin. Whatever your sin is, the grace of Jesus is better than it. Where sin stacks up high, the grace of Jesus can stack up higher, and that is incredible good news to hear. But he knows that we'll assume that that means we can just keep sinning and let God's grace keep stacking up. He knows that we'll try to abuse it. There may have even been some people in the church of Rome who were kind of using this as a way to say, hey, I'm going to, since God's grace will abound more if I sin more, I'm going to sin more as a way to just get more of God's grace. I need more of God's grace. That's some dumb human logic right there. But we say, you know what, let me sin more so that I can just stack up more and more grace. And so Paul is going to, this is what Paul does. Whenever you read Romans, if you haven't read Romans, you should. Paul does this every time. He'll say something, and then he'll know what our objections are. Every time. He's like, I know what you're going to say, though, so let me just hop ahead of you. You know, when people are like, 
Um, so why should I do this? I'm glad you asked. Paul does that all throughout this book. And so he says, now, you know, are we to continue in sin? Here's what he means. He doesn't mean are we to continue to be sinners, right? Paul knows we're going to continue to be sinners. God knows we're sinners. Uh, John 1, it says, if we say we don't have any sin, we're calling God a liar. God knows we're going to continue to be sinners. What Paul is asking is, are we to remain in our sins? Are we to stay in our sins? Are we to hold on to our sins? Are we to press on in our sins? Just because God is gracious. I remember having this exact conversation with a girl when I was in high school, and she, um, you know, I was uh, probably, that time, 16, loved Jesus, loved the Bible, was probably slightly obnoxious about it, and we were, we were just talking about Jesus, and she was like, you know what, I mean, I know you're talking about all the stuff you're trying to live for Jesus, but, you know, if you believe in him, you can be forgiven and go to heaven, so I'm good, it don't really matter. But I was like, no, 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 but he doesn't want us to do that. He's like, but he'll forgive us, so it's all good. And she just kind of very bluntly uh, and straightforwardly just said, it really doesn't matter what I do because God will forgive us. Now, that is not the kind of perspective and heart that God has called us to. That's not a, a broken heart just simply acknowledging that we're still sinners and the Lord is still working on us. That is a rebellious heart trying to take God's kindness for weakness. Right, And though we probably wouldn't just say that with our mouth, I'll do whatever I want, who cares, because God will forgive me. We say that with our lives all the time. We live that way. You know, how many times have we been in situations where we know for certain that what we're about to do is wrong, and we do it anyway? How many times were we in that position this week? And you know what can often happen in our mind? We will bank on the fact that God is gracious. But God is gracious, though, so I'll be okay. That is a much deeper and more evil betrayal than being unfaithful to a boy or girlfriend. Abusing God's grace in that way. And it tells us something about ourselves that after God so graciously saw our rebellion against him, and the way he responded was by sending his only son to lay his life down, the way that we respond to that grace is by rebelling against him more. And that tells us something about our very rebellious nature. That's almost like if we got pulled over for speeding. I say you was just going like 50 over the speed limit. Cop pulls you over, and he's like, you know what? I'm feeling gracious today. I'm going to let you go with a warning, but if you do it again, I'm going to find you. We're like, oh, OMG, thank you so much, sir. Uh, I'm so grateful that you did that. Single tear rolls down your cheek. And then when he starts to walk away, you roll up the window and you speed off at 100 miles per hour immediately. Right? This is like, wait, I, was ju I just gave you a warning. What are you doing? And he's like, and I'm still right here, so you're going to jail now. So it wouldn't, have worked, it wouldn't work out that well. But this is what we do to God. He's responded to our rebellion with grace and kindness. And we assume because he's gracious and kind, let me just rebel against him again. And that sounds dumb because the cop is still there and he sees you. We live under some illusion that God isn't watching us at all times. Here's the thing about God being omnipresent. He's always present no matter where you are or what you're doing. Anytime you sin, you are sinning directly in the face of God. We cannot respond to his kindness with further rebellion. 
when we continue in sin, here's what we're saying to God. When we know it grieves him, when we keep doing it, we're saying, God, I know sin breaks your heart, and I know it makes you angry, and I know you're watching right now, even as I do this, but I can't focus on that. I know you allowed your son to die because of sins like these, and I know that because he died, you'll forgive me, and I could really care less what you think right now because I know you'll let me off the hook. This is what we won't verbalize with our mouths, but that we say so clearly with our actions. That's not real gratitude for the cross. That is not real love of God that's trying to take advantage of God, and God will not be taken advantage of. One of the things the Bible tells us, um, you know, taking God's kindness for weakness is, is very dangerous. It's a big mistake. Scripture tells us that those who uh, will have eternal life for people who have repented of their sins and believe in Jesus. But, and there are warnings in Scripture where the writers literally say, hey, if you stop repenting of your sins, you shouldn't assume you're going to heaven. Because a mark of someone who's really believed in Jesus is they keep repenting of sins. Right. That's the flip side of faith. When you believe that God is true, you turn away from the stuff he says is evil and we stumble and we fall. But we turn. Often it feels like a half step forward and three steps back, but we're still trying to take half steps forward. Right. So this is not scripture calling us to perfection or else we're not believers. But we cannot claim to have genuine faith in Jesus if we care nothing for what he's called us to. We should not assume that we can just say, oh, God got me and continue to sin against him and just bank on the fact that we have eternal life. You may be showing that you don't. So Paul answers his question. Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Should we just press on since God is gracious? No. Quick question for you. Um, in light of that, when was the last time you repented of a sin? When was the last time there was a sin that you found yourself in and you turned away from? When was the last time you saw a pattern in your life that you knew displeased God and you pleaded with God to help you let go of it and you confessed it to others and you did everything in your power to turn away from it because of God's love, because God is gracious? Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself. When was the last time you just said no to yourself? You wanted to do something. You said, Jesus says no, so I'm going to say no. This is the pattern of the life of faith. Saying no to ourselves and saying yes to Jesus. God has called us to repent. Fathers, just a quick word. Um, we are the leaders of our homes, and so we can be really proud. And we can think that we have to uh, project this image of perfection. I am the leader of the home. I make no mistakes. That's false. It's not true. And if you think that, you're the only one that thinks that. Everybody else knows you got problems. A, <laughs> a beautiful thing would be if you make sure that your family sees you repent often. You do not want your kids to grow up having never seen their father say, I'm sorry, and turn away from sin. You don't want your kids to grow up having never seen their father turn away from things that he used to do. You want them to see this is what faith in Jesus looks like. Not daddy being perfect, but me admitting that I'm not and asking Jesus to work on me. This is the life of a Christian. Continually turning 
and trusting in Jesus. Sin has no place in us because sin has no power over us. So Paul says, by no means, can't continue in sin. And you say, well, why? Right? Why? why? Number two, the second thing I want us to keep in mind, keep your death in mind. Right? So keep grace in perspective. Number two, keep your death in mind. Keep your death in mind because it will help us to keep our identity in check. Um, this week, was that this week? Yeah, this week, an anonymous person that I won't name um, misspoke. And it was such a strange thing for him to say that everybody was up in arms. Now, if anyone else, if a different kind of person made this mistake, people may be less confused. But this is a black man who was talking and referred to slaves as immigrants. And so, I, you know, I'll I give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's just, he was hype. He was just talking about the great things about America, and he just kind of got lost and didn't mean to say it that way. But everybody was so confused because they thought, of all people, like, your ancestors would have been some of those kidnapped. They did not immigrate for the American dream. Somebody stole them, right? And he was like, on the bottom of slave ship, those were immigrants. No, no, no. It's not, it's not how immigrants came over, right? There's a difference between an immigrant and a kidnapped victim, right? And so people were so confused. Now, if someone else made this mistake, people probably wouldn't have been as confused. But people were like, you're a black man. That's not what I would expect from a person like you. There are things that we expect from people based on who they are. There are things that are consistent or inconsistent with who somebody is, right? So you'd be confused if you spoke to a professional basketball player who didn't understand basketball. You'd be confused if you ran into a police officer who was purposely breaking the law. You'd be confused if you ran into a firefighter who was an arsonist. That would just be confusing. (laughs) Those things don't match. And so I just say all that to say Paul is making a similar point. There is such thing as certain people doing things that are inconsistent with who they are. Right. And that's what he's saying about our sin. It is inconsistent. I'm going to just read verse two. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying if we've died to sin, how could we live in it? He's saying those two things are are inconsistent. Right. So that the Christian has to constantly hold his death certificate and his new birth certificate in his hands at all times. At the core of remembering how we are to live is remembering who we are. We have died to sin, and now we cannot live in it. If we're dead in our sins, and now we've died to our sins, we have a different relationship with sin, and we cannot live in it. It's like him saying, you don't work at the mall anymore. Stop showing up there every morning. You're not a child anymore. Stop swinging on the swings. You're a grown man, right? He's saying, you're dead to your sins. How could you live in it? These two things are inconsistent. If there's been this transfer from death to life, I don't expect you to lay there like a dead man. I expect you to walk around like someone who's alive. There should be fruit in our lives. Question for you. If you told your coworkers that you were dead to sin, what would they think? Would they, you know, give you the confused face? Would they laugh? Would it be strange to them? Right? Do you live the kind of life that someone would, could see it plausible that you had had some kind of change in your relationship to sin? That can only happen when people have seen you sin and repent. That can only happen when people have seen you say no to yourself. 
God has called us to that lifestyle. And then he takes it a step further. He connects death to our baptism. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A few things to notice about baptism right here. One, Paul assumes that all these believers in Rome have been baptized. So this whole Roman church he's talking to, all of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. He assumes that's something that all believers have in common. Does the same thing in Ephesians 4. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? He, he's saying this is part of what it means. And this is a basic act of obedience. And this is why if someone joins our church, we require folks to have been baptized because it's one of the first acts of obedience when we begin to follow Jesus. It's how we publicly identify ourselves with Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, baptism isn't just that. It's not just for the sake of joining the church. You're also being baptized into something. Baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death. So it makes sense when we think about being baptized into Christ, but it seems strange to talk about being baptized into his death. Right? We, we talk about celebrating baptism. We normally associate baptism with life, which seems like good reason to celebrate and not death. Well, it's not either or. Baptism is a celebration of new life. We get to rejoice in someone who's been reborn and converted. But it isn't just a celebration of life. It's also a recognition of this death. I want us to broaden our understanding of what baptism is. So that it is like a, a wedding that recognizes a new relationship or, or an initiation in the God's family. But it's also like a funeral or a wake. And that we are sending a dead man or woman on their way. They've entered a new life. Right? It's like when um, someone sick dies, and, and if they're a believer, you know, we'll grieve, but we'll also say, at least we can rejoice that, that they're not in pain anymore, that, and they're in a new place. And we say that because we've understood they've moved on to another life where pain is no longer there. And in the same way, baptism is a celebration that someone has died to their sins, the pain, the slavery, everything that was associated with that death and sin, they've died to that, and they moved on to an incredibly new place. In baptism, we're buried with Jesus in that grave, and that grave with Jesus is an incredible place to be because it's through his death that sin was defeated. This is a victorious death. So when someone's metaphorically buried with Jesus in baptism, we are happy. We don't wear all black and weep when someone dies to their sin. We rejoice. Death to sin is, is, is unique, and it's not a death to be grieved or mourned. Death to sin is a death to be celebrated. Death to sin is not something to be feared. It's something to be desired. Death to sin is not something we pray that God would spare people from. It's something we pray God would bring folks to. We want everybody we know to die to their sin because we know that the alternative is dying in our sin. We don't want sin to have any dominion over us. We don't want sin to have any bearing on our eternity. We want our sin defeated, and Jesus has defeated. And since we're dead to our sin, Paul says we shouldn't live in. This is like people getting married and having their wedding and going on their honeymoon and coming back home and acting like they're single. It's like, wait, I was at your wedding. What are you doing, right? And in the same way, folks sometimes may need to say, hey, I watched you be baptized. I, I, I've seen you make a profession of faith in Jesus. 
yet you seem to be living like you're not dead to your sin. Death to sin is a good thing. And of course, with that celebrating that death to sin, we celebrate the resurrection. Verse 4. I want you to pay attention to how much we're connected to Jesus. Watch this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We die with Christ and we rise with Christ. We're resurrected with him too into this newness of life. You, um, you familiar with like a, a new car smell? Where it's like a new car smell. I had a new car in 30 years. I don't know. Uh, but you can even get like the, uh, the little trees with the new car smell on them. The little joints you hang from your, uh, I'm, my vocab is struggling right now, but you know what I'm talking about. And that's a good smell. People like that. There's a distinct smell to new stuff or a new house smell. Like when we moved in, my wife hates the new house smell. Um, but that's the thing. There's something new. Well, my favorite, a new sneaker smell, just the smell of quality leather. When you open the box, it just wafts out. Um, there are distinct smells to new stuff. Yeah, there's a distinction. There's something distinct about stuff that's brand new. Um, but here's the thing. With all of those kind of distinctions, that fades eventually. Right? New car smell fades as it begins to smell like old McDonald's you left in the sea. Right? And new house smell fades as it begins to smell more like home. And new sneaker smell fades because your, your feet is in them. Those smells fade. It doesn't smell new. The kind of newness that Paul talks about here, walking in this newness of life, this is the kind of newness that remains. This is the kind of newness that we want to see in a 20-year-old believer and in an 80-year-old believer. From the youngest who are brand new in their walk with Jesus to the oldest who've been walking with Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years, there is a newness of life. Because it's not new as in the sense it just started. It's new that this isn't how it began, that God gave new life and that newness, that aroma should be in us. Isn't it a beautiful thing to see a believer who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years who loves him even more than the first day they met? The newness of life. When you smell that distinction on him, you see it on him, you see that faith, you see that strength. That's that newness of life. I mean, here's the, here's the thing is that sometimes we do allow that kind of zeal and that kind of distinction of the newness of life to, to fade away. You know, there's so many of us who can think of like, beginning to believe in Jesus, and then as time has gone on, our zeal has faded. Our distinction has faded. Our passion for Jesus has faded and waned over the years. And sometimes we wonder, like, maybe this just isn't as great as it was. Well, just a reminder, Jesus is no less less glorious than he was then. His word is no less powerful than it was then. But our hearts can be hardened. And we don't guard our hearts, they get hard. And I want to encourage you to, to, as he's called us to here, try to walk in that newness of life, that new life that we have, for that aroma to be all around. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's that united language. We are united with him. 
And it's one of the things that always blows me away, especially in Paul, is he doesn't just only talk about us being adopted by God, or only about us being delivered by God, or only saved by God, or only being friends with God. It also says we are one with Jesus. We're united to Jesus. There is no deeper connection possible. And we're united to Jesus in such a way that whatever happened to Jesus effectively happened to us. We died with Jesus and we raised with Jesus. If you ever want to just look into an encouraging theological topic, look into the, our union with Christ. The way that Jesus lived the perfect life so we get treated like we lived the perfect life. And Jesus was exalted so that we get to be glorified and live forever with God. Uh, it, it is a beautiful thing, that union with Jesus. One writer says it like this, all that Christ possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is true that we obtain this by faith. Right? We don't become one with Jesus just by saying we want to be one with Jesus. It's showing up at church. It happens by faith. And when we believe in Jesus, when we receive him, we're made one with him. So that when Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, our old self was crucified with him. And when Jesus was resurrected 2,000 years ago, our new self was resurrected with him. And I could go on and on and on. He tells us why we were crucified with Christ so that the old self might be brought to nothing, the body of sin. Right, our old self that's marred by sin will be brought to nothing. It, right, it has no more power over us. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who's died has been set free from sin. That's why we celebrated death to sin, because there's a freedom that comes along with it. This is one of the beautiful things I don't want us to sleep on about our God and how he saves. Right? We want to remember that God does save us from himself, his own wrath and judgment because of our sin. But he doesn't only save us from himself. And if we skip over the fact that God is not only a savior who satisfies his own wrath, but he's also a deliverer who sees captive slaves in danger and jumps down into earth and saves them, then we'll have an unbalanced view of the gospel. God is always showing himself to us as a deliverer, as the one who frees captives, who sets slaves free. Listen up. Uh, Luke 4, 16 and 19, speaking of Jesus. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Imagine opening the word of God and reading about yourself. Imagine realizing that you handed a scroll to Jesus that was written about him. Verse 18 is what Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's faith. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to set the captives free. And all of us who've been held captive by sin. See in Jesus, the greatest abolitionist there ever was, who came to earth and submitted himself to the mess we're in in order to free us from slavery. Right? An incredible act of deliverance. Verse 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, 
he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's basically just saying this. You don't expect Jesus to have to go back and die for sin again. This was the uniqueness of the sacrifice of Jesus. This wasn't like slaughtering lambs over and over and over again. The Lord Jesus died once and for all and the work was finished. He's not going to have to die again. And he's saying, since you were crucified with Christ, you are dead to your sin. And we do not expect you to have to have that deadness to your sin over and over again. It's been done once for all. And so we should live in. We can rejoice that all of our greatest enemies have been defeated. He's saying, consider yourself alive to God and dead to sin. Quick question, though. If we're dead to sin and alive to God, why do we still do it? This is the question that will always pop into our minds when we see passages like this. We say, that sounds amazing that I'm dead to sin, but I still got sin problems. Why do we still do it? One of the reasons is just plain unbelief. And I'm not saying that when we get in situations where we're tempted to sin, we turn into atheists who don't believe God exists. I think we still believe God exists, but we don't believe in his goodness. We doubt his wisdom. We doubt that his commands are good. Because, uh, you know, we may still know it intellectually in a moment, right? I think we've probably all been in a place where we were about to sin against God, We knew we were about to sin against God. We kind of didn't really want to sin against God, but we did it anyway. And it's because in those moments, somewhere in the dark parts of our heart, we believe that sin brings us more pleasure and satisfaction than God can. We believed in this moment that we know better than God, that he said this was better, but we don't believe that. I think this is better. I think the pleasure I'll get from this is better than the pleasures forevermore that he gives. I think this satisfies me more than he could. It's unbelief. And what that unbelief leads to is um, a lack of self-control. Sometimes we also feel like, I didn't want to, but I just couldn't help it. I want to remind you that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. When you get in a car, you got the steering wheel, you're in control of that. You're driving, you got the gas, you got the brake, you're in control of that. The Lord has given you control of your own self. We spend a lot of time trying to control other people and change them. We don't spend much time at all trying to control ourselves. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Do not live under the illusion that you cannot control yourself. You can. And as he's saying here, sin has no dominion over you. You're dead to it. You can control yourself. Animals live off instinct. They do whatever their instinct tells them to do. Right. Even my dog, who is far a French bulldog, far away from the wolves they came from. Right. There's something instinct in him. When he sees like a squirrel run by, he thinks he's a wolf. He's going to try to kill it. He's probably going to get tired before he gets there and not get it. But animals live off of instinct. They're not these kind of analytical, critical thinkers with morals and values in the same way that we are. They do what they've been programmed to do. We are not animals. We have self-control. We can think. We can deny ourselves. We can turn away from things. Right? So one of the things I encourage you to do this week is spend less time thinking about controlling other people and spend more effort trying to control yourself. That's what God has called us to. Sin has no place in us. Because it has no power over us. We want to keep our death 
in mind. Last thing, we'll close with this. Third, we want to keep sin off the throne. Keep sin off the throne. Keep grace in perspective. Keep our death on our mind. And we want to keep sin off the throne. Paul started asking that question, can we continue in sin? Answer is no. We're dead to sin. How could we live in it? We've been buried and raised with Jesus. And now he's going to conclude with this little reminder with some action steps for us, reminding us how we should interact with sin throughout our week. We should not treat it as a king. We should treat it as a defeated enemy. Right? Maybe it used to be king, used to have authority, but now it's just a sad, defeated, failure, loser, defeated enemy. Jesus took care of it. Verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for, un, uh, for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You ever had somebody, um, man, this mic is driving me crazy. Um, you ever had somebody come to your house and they act like they at their house? Just walking in your house all comfortable, taking their shoes and socks off, changing the channel on your TV, putting on what music they want to listen to. And as um, the man of a house, I'm like, you just going to sit at the head of my table and pray for the meal like that? You think this you think this your house? Right? And the reason that bothers us is because, you know, we think like, hey, this I want to be kind to you and be hospitable, but this is, this is my house. You don't have that kind of a, you can play whatever music you like. You can have your uh, naked toes on your carpet if you want. This is my house, though, right? And these are my rules. If you can't tell, I'm a little bitter. But sin is the same way. Sin will show up in situations, and it'll pretend like it's the authority in the situation. So what we don't understand is that sin is deceitful. It lies to us. So, of course, in moments of temptation, we're under the impression that sin is actually an authority, and it can tell us what to do. Sin loves to put on clothes and play dress up and put on a fake paper crown and tell you it's king. But what we know is the king of kings has already defeated it, right? So he's saying don't let sin reign and to make you uh, obey its passions. So sin can try to make you obey its passions, but notice if it's going to reign, you have to let it. It's in your control. Do not let sin reign. This is a choice. So for this reason, there are no excuses. Whenever we sin, it's because we've freely chosen to do so. God didn't tempt you, right? Others may have tempted you, but nobody forced you. It is your choice. There was a time when we were enslaved to our sin, right? Still held responsible, but our hearts were dark and enslaved. But this is not that time. If Jesus has given you life, you've been freed. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This is like a sacrificial worship language, presenting, uh, presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. When we continue in sin, we're presenting our body and our arms and legs and our mind to sin, saying, here I am, sin, send me. I am yours to use for unrighteousness. I am a vessel in your hands, sin. And we know that sin is opposed to our God so that when we sin, we're offering ourselves up to sin to be used as a tool and an enemy to oppose the living God. 
One of the reasons we take sin lightly is because we don't understand the depth of its darkness. He's saying, don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. He's saying instead, present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So instead, we want to come before God saying, Lord, I know you brought me from death to life. Here I am. Send me. Use me for your purposes. Use me for the ends you created the world for. I am yours and rightfully yours. Use me. But that's the choice. That's the, the fork in the road. With each moral situation, will I present my body to sin to be used to oppose God? Or will I present my body to God to be used for his purposes? That is the choice. And if we'll remember that, it'll help us out. Here's a a truth that gives me hope. You never, ever have to sin. If we're broken, we will. But you never have to. Your will is not bound. 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. I love that it ends here because this reminds us that this is a hopeful passage. It's convicting because we're thinking about sin and how it's inconsistent with who we are. But he reminds us sin has no dominion over you. That could be the whole message this morning. Sin has no dominion, so don't let it pretend like it does. Sin is like the little kid who... Um, whenever he plays with his friends, tries to tell everybody what to do, and you're like, you're bossy. You don't call someone bossy unless they're not really the boss, right? You don't call your boss like, stop being bossy. He's like, well, I'm the boss, so I should act bossy, right? Sin is bossy in that way, always trying to show up and take control of the situation, but what we know is that sin has no dominion over us. I want you to, for a moment, if there is sin you're struggling with that you feel bound to, would you take a second and just think about it for a moment? I want to tell you that God is saying to you, that sin has no dominion over you. That sin has no dominion over you. I know, especially as believers, when we're bound in sin and we feel hopeless and often desperate and depressed and we feel like we're trapped, God's word reminds us that sin has no power over you. That sin has no power over you. The power of Jesus is much stronger than any sin. And the good news is it's already been defeated. This is the good news of the gospel. It's good news that our world was broken by sin and sin controlled everything. When we talk about sin, we know what we're talking about. We've seen sins work. We're not talking about some abstract idea It's just like, oh, Christians just talk about this among each other. We know sin. Sin is the reason our marriages have problems. Sin is the reason you don't get along with your father. Sin is the reason that you don't get along with your boss. And we love to look in other areas. If only this didn't happen to this. Sin is our main problem. So that even if you get away from everybody you don't like, you still gonna have problems because you're going to be there. And you're a sinner. The good news is that even though our world is so messed up by sin, God loved us so much that he sent the sinless one, the Lord Jesus, who came to earth. He lived in all the same uh, messed up situations that we had. In fact, many more, a lot worse than the Lord Jesus, never, ever sinned. There's someone whose sin doesn't have power over, right? And so Jesus shows us how it's done, and he lives his perfect life. And then the plot twist is he gets punished as if he was a sinner like us because God is so gracious, 
that he allowed Jesus to die and take our punishment for sin on the cross? That here's what happened when Jesus died. Um, Our three greatest enemies, sin and the grave and the devil. Jesus defeated the devil for you. Jesus defeated the grave for you. Jesus defeated sin for you. Man, that's good news. If you're here today, you don't know if you know Jesus. I want for you more than anything not to live a life enslaved to sin. Sin is a cruel master. Sin doesn't make friends. Sin takes captives. Sin is a cruel master. And again, the greatest abolitionist of all time, the Lord Jesus, came to earth. And he's already done all the work to free you. All he asks is that you let go, cling to him, trust in him, believe in him. It's amazing to show up to something and the work has already been done for you. That's the work of Christ. You ain't got to earn your way to God. Jesus earned it for you. You ain't got to defeat your enemies. Jesus defeated them for you. It's literally the easiest way possible. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. For those of us who trusted in Jesus, good news is sin has no place in us because it has no power over us. God hasn't called us to do something. He hasn't given us the tools to do. He ends it by saying we're under grace, not under law. Right? He's saying that's why sin has no dominion over us. We're in this new covenant. Right? The problem with the law wasn't that the law was flawed. It's that we were messed up. And so now God has said, hey, this time I've done all the work for you. Just trust in Jesus. And so if you're feeling convicted by this sermon, remember the same Jesus you trusted in, the grace that you believed in the first time, that grace is still there for you to repent and to turn back to him. He is a gracious God. My, 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 my hope is that you'll leave this sermon hopeful that sin has no dominion over you, not just beating yourself up. Sin has no place in us because sin has no power over us. Um, Like those Juneteenth slaves, we've been free. We have no obligation to that cruel master. And the good news is Jesus came to earth in the fullness of time at exactly the right time to declare our freedom to us. My encouragement, remind yourself of that all week. Remind your brothers and sisters of that all week because it's the best news we have. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, your word is so good. Your good news is so good, Father. And so, God, we pray you would work in our hearts by it. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. Please let him work in our hearts. Father, I pray for friends in this room who don't know Jesus. God, help them to see the goodness of Jesus and to trust in him, Father. And God, we also pray that Uh, For those of us in this room who may be struggling with some secret sin, some sin we feel bound to, God, remind us that sin has no dominion over us, God. Help us to turn away from it, God, and we pray you'd be honored in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.